3: We think often of what it means, the, the significance of, of the spiritual heritage that uh, many of us have, those that have a connection to the history of the church and faith um, through the faith of our fathers. And as much as we oftentimes ponder what that means, how often do we stop and think about the faith of not just our fathers, but the faith of our sons? The reality is that as much as the gospel message is timeless, we're seeing the way current generations react to it. And and most notably, how oftentimes we're beginning to see a shift taking place. That while the faith of our fathers and that generation and maybe the current generation is strong, the faith of our sons and our daughters is on weak grounds. There is some new research out by the respected pollster, George Barna. In fact, he's been a guest on this program many times that would suggest that there is a frightening trend taking place amongst 20-somethings in our country today. And to get some insights on this topic, David Kinnaman joins us. He has written a new book entitled You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church and Rethinking Faith. He serves also as the president of the Barna Group. And David, great to have you on the program.
1: Thank you for having me. My pleasure.
3: You know, we always want to hear about uh, the enthusiasm of young people in their relationship with Jesus Christ. I know that fondly there's a good percentage of those listening to our conversation right now who found Christ uh, as young children or as teenagers and have continued on in faith uh, for years and years and years and yet to begin to see that there's a a trend taking place that isn't a very encouraging one I, I think ought to cause all of us to pause and ask the question what's happening? If we understand that the gospel is timeless then what of Christianity today in the West, in North America, that suddenly is not maintaining the same appeal, so to speak, for those in that uh, special age group of late teens into their 20s.
1: Well, what's challenging for us now is that the culture has changed so quickly over the last 10, 20 years that we make the argument in the research that essentially people are more enculturated than ever. They're more captive to our culture than we've ever seen a generation done so. And this is true of young Christians. This is true of young non-Christians. Uh, they have more access to all sorts of ideas and worldviews through technology. Uh, they have you know, exposure to uh, you know, sexuality and all sorts of things earlier in life. Media is giving them a certain sort of worldview and perspective. And so for those reasons and many others, a lot of social changes, they're getting married much later, they're having children much later, they're responding to the divorce culture that the boomers largely, you know, enacted in our culture. And so for many reasons they're 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 disengaging from the church. They're disengaging from Christianity in some cases. And we do need to pay attention to this cultural reality and how is it that we actually raise young people of deep faith.
3: Is this then less about Perhaps a particular age group then on the on the continuum, uh, David, as it is, suggestive of the church losing some of its grasp, some of its influence then on culture?
1: Yeah, you know, it's really interesting you ask me that because when you talk about this phrase, you lost me. We very intentionally titled it because that's the voice of the next generation about the church. You know, you lost me. I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand. And part of it's because they're so distracted. They're so busy doing other things. But I, I think you're actually really on point with that question. In that, what we're finding from a lot of our research is it's certainly true of the next generation and how we work with them. But it's also true of all of us in this culture, of any of any generation, that we're more distracted. Our attention spans are shorter. We have more. There's more things that are vying for our you know time and attention and mind space and so i think it's more difficult for the gospel to go forward in this you know very abundant uh, pluralist uh, you, you know very you know a very rich country that we have and and no nation has ever been able to really withstand the prosperity that that America currently enjoys i think that 's the kind of question we need to ask ourselves is how do we disciple in that era not just the next generation but all of us
3: well, and I think not just the appeal as you 're suggesting of of all that uh, that uh, the culture so to speak has to to offer in every sense of the word <clears throat> but then to it strikes me david that that relationships. Uh, have changed uh, pretty significantly I mean for example having grown up as a product of the 1960s and 70s having come to faith in Christ in the 1970s um It didn't take a lot of explaining to do when we talked about uh, what it meant to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, to walk in fellowship with very God himself. I mean, we were all in that era longing for a a deeper, more significant, more satisfying relationship on on the human level. So that that meant something to us. And those were words and phrases that resonated with with the longing that we were seeking to satisfy. That said, look at the way things have changed for this generation that has grown up on uh, cable television and the internet and texting and you know relationships today are about what you do on the backside of an iPhone as opposed to the level of, of, of contact, that the just pure human contact that we used to have has changed so radically and so I would wonder if part of this is just the notion of how we do relationships has changed so much um, if, if I can't relate to a personal one-on-one conversation with my dad because I'm used to doing all this stuff electronically, how can I possibly think about a personal one-on-one relationship with a God that I can't even see?
1: That's that's really well said, and when you think about it, so when you talk about a youth group or a college ministry, and in the past, 20 years ago, that provided a sort of extracurricular place for a person to have a relationship uh, not only with God, but also with with each other, with other Christians, and what we're seeing with the youngest generation of teenagers now, uh, young Christians, is that the youth group experience is even changing. In that they don't need the social network of the youth group like they did in the past. It's it's really more about either their pursuit of God or their pursuit of other kinds of things. Um, you know, we're finding that their their engagement in youth ministry is, is is changing, and I think this goes to the heart of it that you know what we found in this research is that it's not enough for us just to have young people who are engaged in church services and and really as parents or youth pastors or as Uh, any kind of leader within a church we need to do a better job of recognizing that the signs of faithfulness aren't just attendance at a program that in fact as we're living in an information world I think that Jesus is getting lost in the data stream of all the the tweeting and Facebooking and digital activities that we have and just as you say it's hard enough to have face to face relationships with others I think this idea of connecting with a real and holy and personal God is actually really changing for this generation and, and And unfortunately, most churches and parents say, well, you know, my my young person is there, they're they're attending faithfully, and that's not, in my mind, enough of a measure based on all this research of faithfulness.
3: It's part of the problem, too, as we suggested here, David, that the way we do relationships, um, certainly in the West today, is changing pretty drastically. It's easy for people to hide behind the facade of Facebook and MySpace and so-called social media, where you can kind of, uh, you can be as vulnerable or not. As you choose to be, you can be as real or not as you choose to be. And when suddenly you're now trying to confront young people with a real vibrant true, pure, um, all of the bells and whistles and, and, and sort of facade all stripped down personal relationship with God, I would, I would wonder if we couch it in the terms that we did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, if that doesn't scare a lot of young people today because they look at it I don't want that. I don't want anybody to know me that, that real or that intimately or that personally. I would rather hide bef- behind the facade of who I want you to think I am because I'm too afraid to show you who I am.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. And and we learned from our research that a lot of these young people feel as though they have to live split lives, uh, split personalities between their church self, their digital self, their family self, their school self. And and so this era of, you know, helping, and, and this is an opportunity for families and churches and all of us who care about this next generation, to help reconnect the soul and the person and the heart, mind, soul, and strength that Jesus talks about. And, and so I think there's a great opportunity for churches, but this idea of split souls, um, you think about that even in terms of sexuality, we see this from the research that many young people feel split. They, they have to be one person in church, traditionalist and buttoned up and, you know, uh, uh, careful about what they say and then something else entirely when it comes to their sexual you know habits and lives and so we we have to do a lot of work i mean there's a lot of things we should be concerned about with this generation and i think there's a lot of things we ought to be concerned about about how we, as the church, respond in a healthy way to the culture, and how we prepare students to live in that culture.
3: Indeed so. And the other thing, too, is, you know, oftentimes, not only is there this sense of a split, as you suggest, but then I think a lot of young people feel as if they're being forced to choose one or the other. It's like the faith of my fathers, or uh, whatever option B is. And we'll talk more about this aspect. We continue our conversation tonight with David Kinnaman. He is the president of the Barna Group, a new book out that is an eye-opener. It's called You Lost Me. Why young Christians are leaving church and rethinking faith as this edition of Lifeline continues
0: and now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts
3: we're back to our conversation with David Kinnaman. David is the president of the Barna Group, Barna Research. You're very familiar with the work of George Barna. They have taken time to to study, in particular, the faith of our sons and daughters and to see in what direction all of that is headed. And all of this revealed inside the pages of a new book, by the way, entitled You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church. David, as you indicated, we were talking a bit before the break, what's really happening here is that the, the as the church is losing its influence, on culture today and as the stranglehold of the power that said culture has on young people today is is ever increasing. I mean, it's clear to see how this is being set up as kind of a, a perfect storm, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it really is. And I think it's this whole research project. I mean, I'm interested in it as a researcher. I'm also interested in it as a parent. I'm interested in as a, a pastor's son who, who grew up in the church. And it's really, for me, helped me understand how do we actually work with this generation in the midst of a changing culture? And, you know, the title is strong because that's the, what young people say about the church. But it's really a very hopeful project about how do we actually reconnect with this generation? How do we actually learn faithfulness in a new context? We use the story of Daniel. Um, you know, from Scripture, where you know he was taken out of a, a comfortable social setting, you know, as a young Hebrew, and taken into this culture of Babylon. We learn about that in the Book of Daniel in, in Scripture, and uh, we use that story really often in the book as a way of understanding what does it mean to be faithful in an entirely new context. And I think that's what we're facing now with this generation of young Christians. All
3: right, let me give you an example. This is right out of the front pages here. Uh, in fact, a story that appeared on ESPN regarding uh, Tim Tebow. Everybody knows that he's been taking some flack, uh, most specifically recently former Broncos quarterback Jake Plummer uh, in a radio interview that uh, basically said that uh, he wished that Tebow would curb, quote, his references to Jesus and his faith, um, saying effectively, we're getting the message. You don't have to continue to remind me time and time again Um, through the lens of this research. uh, Talk to me about that scenario.
1: Yeah. So what's interesting about this is there's both the trend of you know young people losing their faith, and there's also what we call a counter trend that we describe in the book of young people who stick with faith and why. And and you know I think Tim Tebow is an example of a young twenty something who is very out front with his faith, who certainly has never you know lost his faith such that we know or you know that we can we can document um, at this point. But when you look at at um, the culture, what is so interesting about what's challenging for young Christians is that. Their peers are more skeptical of ever than Christianity, and many of these peers actually had backgrounds within either Catholicism or Protestant Christianity. And so I think, I think that's a great example of, you know, here's an example of the counter trend in Tim Tebow and the, the, the public nature of his faith. We see many other people who are in Hollywood, who are in music, who are in business— who, you know, are very much passionate about uh, the Church and about Christianity. Um, but what's different that we see now compared to the previous generation and generations, say, of the 1960s and 50s, is that there's a bigger gap now between young Christians and their peers, and they're they're having to reach further in order to explain the nature of Christianity. And, and you know, the one thing we might say is that as, as much as we should support Support and applaud Tim Tebow's public, upfront faith. You know what is it about that that's going to transform culture? You know, it's not just because he acknowledges Jesus that that he's going to be transformational. It's because of the quality of his life in other aspects of his vocation and calling that people will respond to that message. So it's important for us to recognize the skepticism of this generation as well. Is
3: there any attraction to this generation that looks at something like that and says, "You are repeatedly subjecting yourself to criticism by doing this," and we've all always- seen him kneel and pray after a touchdown or uh, during key moments during the game, uh, it's very attention-getting. Uh, he's being ridiculed for it. It, 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 does it. Does it work into the logic of this generation, as we're trying to understand them better, David, that some people would say, you know, if you're willing to voluntarily subject yourself repeatedly to that kind of criticism for your faith, that there must be something awfully special about your faith, I mean, do, do young people draw that conclusion?
1: Yeah, they do and they're looking for things that are that matter in the world and to their own lives and to their own sense of meaning and their own spiritual journeys and you know this is where I think this is a generation that's very interested in truth and very interested in things that matter. Uh, they're also highly narcissistic and and distracted, so it's sometimes difficult for us to get their attention on things. But I think they respond to seeing people that are sold out to any cause. I think the difference that we should keep in mind too is that they're a very diverse generation. They have come to expect that they should respect and you know give anybody of any faith, of any sexual persuasion, of any ethnic background. I mean, of any of any background at all. That it you know they they fully expect that that everyone is equally you know, right and equally valid at all times. And so there's a certain sense in which not many of these young people that we interview are willing to take huge risks for their own, you know, their own uh, positioning, their own brand in the world. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, is a, is a challenge for them. They're, they're not necessarily willing like Daniel in, in the story of the lion's den uh, necessarily willing to, you know, give up their life on behalf of their faith. And, and that's, that's a, an interesting challenge that I think we face with this generation.
3: We also have a generation, I think, David, that is very interested in sort of leaving their mark on things. I mean, we're seeing this, I think, to a degree with some of, not all by a long shot, but some of uh, the Occupy Wall Street protesters. Or we think of people that get involved in things like, you know, uh, protecting the planet and animals and things of this sort. It it seems to be a generation that very much is engaged in wanting to make a difference. Do Do we couch some of the impact of Christianity in in those terms so that there is that sense of attractiveness to it or or, or two young people buy it rather
1: well, I think you're right that there's a real sense of, of wanting to make a difference in the world, and they're they're very much socially conscious. But what we find in our research is some of that is only skin deep for these young people. You know, they, they, they it's really cool to care. In some ways, we could say that we've effectively made them consumers of causes rather than uh, what I think Christ calls us to is to be really spent on behalf of those causes. Yeah, it's funny
3: you mention that. I, over the, uh, the weekend here, I saw some pictures of Matt Damon, who is apparently filming a new movie down in Mexico, and he's been very much in favor of PETA and urging people, you know, if you can be a vegan, you know, more power to you, and very much on that side of, you know, protecting animals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And here he's captured attending a bullfight in Mexico City, and I wonder what uh, his PETA friends would say if they saw that.
1: Yeah, there's all these inconsistencies that, you know, we inevitably come to. And I think this is the message of one of the things that Jesus talks about in his ministry is this, the fact that there's so many inconsistencies in our efforts as human beings that it's impossible for us through our own, through our own you know, try harder ism. To just simply work harder at saving the planet, or work harder at, at addressing these causes, and I think my my challenge to us as Christians would be in, in understanding this next generation that we don't want to just get them involved in a cause to change the world, because it turns out, as we learn from the gospel and from from the Bible, that you know there's nothing new under the sun, and, and in fact, you know we, we need to have a healthy reverence for the Lord's work. That we should care about these these issues, but we 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 can't solve them in our own human effort and power. And yet, at the same time, if our if our faith is simply about you know believe these these things in order to get to heaven one day and convince everyone else to get to heaven because of your faith in Christ, if it's if it is simply and only about event you know sort of getting people saved and salvation, I think it also does this this generation a disservice that they, they really are called and interested in. In understanding how their faith gets worked out in the world, and so we owe them, I think that the depth that following Christ, that following the gospel, means we're concerned about eternity, but we're also concerned about how we live our lives and the quality of of the kind of impact we have on our neighbors and on our workplaces and on our families.
3: We're talking about a new book, "You Lost Me," and you know this really ought to sit on the shelf better put on the desk of um, every youth minister, youth pastor, every senior pastor, everyone who's engaged in organizations like uh, YWAM, Youth with a Mission, uh, Youth for Christ, and so many others as we gain a better understanding through the research of the Barna Group, uh, the attitudes of where young people are today, and most importantly, what we can do to get a better job at engaging the culture, capturing the culture for the cause of Christ, and as a result, not just reaching young people for Jesus, but keeping them for Jesus. Toward that end, David Kinnaman, author of this new book, are, are there some of the trends that we're seeing, too, that some people feel as if, uh, young people feel as if they have to make a choice, that it's either between um, kind of launching out on my own identity or embracing mom and dad's religion, or even in some cases uh, with debates over everything going on concerning uh, science and bioethics and technology, even sometimes uh, young people may feeling as if they have to choose between belief in God. or science?
2: Yeah,
1: I think throughout this book and throughout the research that underlies it, we saw this really this choice that young people felt they had to make between their friends and their faith, between being a young scientist or someone in medicine, and their faith between choosing to doubt or or being comfortable with the doubts that they have and being faithful. Um, So many different places where young people feel that they have to choose between being the Christian they're called to be or being the person who they are. And, you know, that's that's a challenge. I think, again, throughout Scripture you see this tension where we we have to live, you know, in the world but not of the world. This is something that Jesus prays for his followers in John 17, the in but not of tension. And I think that's the tension that every generation has faced. I think it's more pressing than ever now with this generation and throughout the project, again, we talk about the reasons for disconnection, but we also talk about the reasons for reconnection. So, for instance, when we talk about having to choose between our faith and our friends, we make the argument that really the church has done an, an inadequate job of talking not just about the, the singular uh, salvation through available through Christ, but how Jesus himself had this heart for outsiders and and really wanted to pursue people around him. You know, he was, he was notorious for hanging out with sinners. He had a heart for people that were lost. And I think this generation feels as though the church experiences and their parents and the sort of the the nice, comfortable Christian way of life pushes them to choose um, a a, a way of life where they they have to choose the safe, comfortable religious life or exclude their friends. And and really, I think it's a false choice. And in so many of these cases, we learn that the choice between science and faith, between friends and faith, they're false choices that we need to reframe for young people.
3: For everyone who has a heart for young people listening right now, whether they're engaged in full-time ministry or just love the Lord, yell, love young people, what would you say is, is the most significant message um, underlying you lost me that you want readers to take away from that can kind of be an action item for the church?
1: Well, I care about this generation enormously. I love the church. I want to see them together together. Um, And what we learned is that in so many cases, the, the friendships, the relationships that we think we have with this generation, they're not as deep as we imagine them to be. And I was also shocked to find how often these young people had no idea how their faith really intersects their vocation or their calling or what God calls them to do. I mean, as an expression, only 16% of young Christians said they knew how the Bible applied to their field or interest area or profession. And we need to do a better job. I mean, we owe this next generation so much more to prepare them to live in but not of this culture. And I think the research really gives you some tools, not only to understand the disconnections, but really to understand... How do we reconnect? How do we learn from this generation and serve them as God pursues them and their heart and their potential service in the future for the kingdom?
3: Some insights inside the pages of You Lost Me, while Young Christians Are Leaving Church and Rethinking Faith, nobly published by Baker Books, available to bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get information on the web, David Kinneman, that's K-I-N-N-A-M-A-N, David com. David, thanks so much for the time and the insights.
0: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
3: You know, the topic in this segment of the show is not a pleasant one. It's not an easy one to deal with. It's one that, frankly, I think most of us would rather avoid, and yet it is a normative part of life. And I guess that, at the forefront, needs to be something we all need to be reminded of, and that is as much as we we celebrate events in life, weddings, the birth of a new child. We celebrate new beginnings. Uh, There's not much celebration, though, that comes to the end of events. We don't celebrate when a marriage ends. We certainly don't have cause to celebrate when a life ends. Although, certainly from a Christian perspective, we understand, you know, as Paul said, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And yet that grieving process is not so much for the loved one who's gone on to their reward. They've run the good race. They've they've finished the race. They've crossed that finish line. And and uh, now they go on to their reward And that we grieve for ourselves because of the sense of loss that we feel, the presence of that special someone in our life that has suddenly gone from us. Certainly the impressions that they made on us, the influence that they had in our lives, that's something you never lose. And maybe that's another thing that we need to be mindful of as we begin our conversation tonight, that there is much hope to be found, particularly for the Christian, during times of loss and grief. The title, Finding Hope in Times of Grief, uh, uniquely sets to this new book tonight as we talk about this topic of how to go about um, dealing with loss in life and where to turn when a loved one passes. Joining me on the program, uniquely qualified to address this topic, a couple who, um, inside of one week, lost both a father and a son. And Preston and Glenda Parrish, thanks so much for taking time to be with us on the show tonight.
2: Hey, Craig. It's great to be with you tonight.
3: It's good to be with you, Craig. Uh, Preston, let me start with you. Kind of set up, if you would, the scenario for our listeners. Uh, You know, it's never easy to be sure when you lose a loved one, more difficult still when that loved one is a parent. Um, In your case, though, it was sort of a double whammy within one week, wasn't it?
2: Well, it was, and I so appreciated your opening comments. We all do love to celebrate the blessings that come to us in life, the happy occasions, and, of course, we live in a society that likes to dwell on those things to the exclusive of the other part of reality, namely that we live in a world that's fallen, a world that's out of order, and, in fact, a world where one out of every one person does die, where difficult events happen such as we've seen in Japan most recently and the fact is that we really do have to be prepared to take not just the happy times but also the difficult times and to deal with those uh, from the standpoint of a a rock-solid foundation and the importance of doing that was driven home for us five years ago as in the same week as you mentioned my aged and ailing father died but then also just the day after we buried my father our twenty five-year-old son Nathan uh... college graduate uh, an instructor at a science camp there in california uh... he died in a rock climbing accident and we had been anticipating my father's death he was approaching eighty He had been in declining health for some time he did love the lord we were very close at the same time though his death was certainly something that i in particular uh... grieved uh... he would not be here with me in this world anymore and i would greatly miss him. and in the process of beginning to sort through living beyond his presence just within twenty four hours or so is exactly when the telephone call came from a sheriff's deputy there in california telling us about our son's rock climbing fall at that point even though we my wife linda and i had been involved in ministry for many years we had certainly dealt with lots of situations of tragedy in other people's lives, and some in our own. At that point, we were plunged into an experience of grief like we had never before known, that required us to cling to Christ as never before, and that now, as we have walked day by day beyond this experience, uh, has resulted in us in experiencing God's faithfulness and God's care in ways we had never known before. The
3: the irony, Glenda, I think, behind all of this is, even though we give uh, cognizant um, acknowledgement that death is a part of life, as unpleasant as that may be, as distasteful as that may be, it's something that we all recognize. You know, the, the seed falls to the ground and dies. There, there is, you know, to man appointed once to die and then the judgment. We know that this is part of life and it's a normative part of life. And yet, in spite of that cognizant reasoning uh, or giving mental assent to that notion, this yet remains a topic that we still struggle with.
4: It really does, and I think that um, before Nathan went to heaven, I felt I knew exactly what it was like for somebody that was grieving, but when it actually happened, I realized that I knew nothing, and it is quite a journey. It's very complex, and um, we experienced it just like anybody else would that, went, that goes through it. And had some very tough days, but at the same time, because we had faith in Jesus Christ, we saw God everywhere, and we, um, he helped us get through it. And we just felt like we needed to write the book to help people that were walking this road know that God sees them, that he knows everything they think about, that he sees every tear they shed, and that he will walk with them.
3: Was there a moment early on in this experience, Preston, and and we should, for the benefit of our listeners, um, let folks know that uh, you're you're not just kind of a casual believer here. Um, You've you've walked with Christ for many, many years. You've served in key leadership roles with the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Um, Yourself, Linda, you've been a Bible teacher. You've been a writer of Bible study curriculum. Um, So knowledge of the scripture, things of this sort, is certainly a topic to which which neither of you are strangers. And yet as much as this thing came upon you, uh, losing both your dad and a son inside of one week, was there that moment of what's going on here? God, why are you allowing this? Lord, where have you gone?
2: Well, the, the why question certainly does come up, but a few days after these events happened so close together, I was indeed pondering them and trying to make some sort of sense out of them and what dawned on me is that those whose well-being depends on figuring everything out and understanding everything will not be well this side of heaven because right now we do see through a glass darkly we see as in a mirror dimly we don't understand a lot of things but the fact is we don't have to understand everything to be well in Jesus Christ. When we cling to Jesus, we experience that Jesus is enough. In fact, He's more than enough, and He is the only one who's enough. And by clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in faith, in our darkest hours, then even our darkest hours can be occasions when we see God uh, and the light of His love shining through to us faithfully. They can also be occasions when others are helped by how we go through those difficulties in a way that they might not be helped by how we live when the sun is shining and the birds are singing.
3: Um, you have other children?
2: We do. We have a a daughter uh, who's married and has three children of her own now. We have an older son who is uh, 19 months older than Nathan was uh and then our youngest child is uh, 17 and uh, a junior in high school so we have four children and that in itself has been a part of our experience of walking through grief we have experienced as many listeners would have who have had a similar experience that people who haven't had a loved one especially a child die don't quite understand the dynamic uh, some people say, well, at least you've got three more. Well, the fact is, uh, three more here with you do not take the place of the one who is now absent from you. Each one is special in their own way. And just as our Lord told about the shepherd who, when he had 100 sheep and 99 were with him, and one was missing, and he went after the one missing one. So no matter how many children we have, we, we miss the one who is not with us.
3: And of course, added then to the complexity of all this is not only dealing with the grief and the why questions, but also helping your children go through the process of losing a sibling.
4: That's very true, and every person grieves differently. People that are grieving right now realize that, but children grieve um, differently when they lose a brother. And we have seen it in three different ways. One child walked through it with us and was very expressive, One has been very quiet about it and is probably still working through it. And then Jessie Ruth was just 12 years old when it happened. And her grief um, in some part came quickly, but the biggest part of it did not come for years down the road. And so all of them did grieve differently.
3: Let's pause for a moment when we come back to more of our conversation with Preston and Glenda Parrish. We'll talk about some of the different methodology that goes into this process of grieving. As Glenda points out, we all have different ways of approaching it, and there's, in many cases, not just one right answer. But How do you go about figuring out for yourself what that process is, what it ought to look like? How do you come out on the other side of this loss and grief, um, successfully so? We'll talk more with Preston and Glenda Parrish, a look at Finding Hope in Times of Grief, as this edition of Lifeline continues.
1: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
3: Finding Hope in Times of Grief, that is the title of a new book by my guest tonight, Preston and Glenda Parrish. We're talking about how you go about dealing with the grieving and loss process and what all of that means and and how to indeed, in the midst of that struggle, in the midst of that sense of, of... desperation in some cases, uh, that hopelessness to actually find hope. Certainly that is the promise that we all have in Christ Jesus. And and yet going through that struggle, that loss, that hope, um, how to come out on the other side, that is key to what we're discussing tonight. Um, oftentimes people get the sense, I think, uh, Preston, and I'm sure both you and Glenda and your family went through this, of just simply being overwhelmed. It's almost as if you were paralyzed by the grief, Um, maybe for a short season, uh, distracted by the details that have to be worked through that kind of keep your mind and your heart off topic uh, because you've got funeral preparations and things of this sort and dealing with the opening parts of of an estate plan uh, or, or execution of an estate plan, things of this nature. And then at some point, At some point, you have to come full force and deal, fully frontal, rather, in dealing with the loss and the grief. What was it like in in your case?
2: Well, Craig, you're very perceptive. Uh, Dealing with grief is an ongoing matter that has lots of layers, an ongoing challenge and struggle. In fact, the struggle of one's lifetime, I would say. Grief has about it both that initial shock, Uh, That comes to you when an event happens, when someone you love dies and is no longer going to be a presence in your life in this world. And we all pretty much understand that, and that's why people rally around so quickly with flowers and food and cards and calls and all of those things that happen typically in the initial days and few weeks after someone experiences the loss, the death of a loved one. But probably the most surprising thing to us was both, was that there is also a longer-term sort of time-release effect to grief, where not just for days or weeks, but for months and years, the effects of grief and its impact on your life are something you walk through and live with and learn to wear and have to deal with day in, day out. That was a surprise, and then also surprising to us was the fact that Most people really don't understand that. They think after a couple of months maybe your life is going to be back to normal and you're going to get on with things. Well, the fact is when you experience the death of someone you love deeply, uh, you will never be back to normal. You will have a new normal. It would be very much like learning to live perhaps with an amputation. Uh, its effects will be with you for the rest of your days. You will go on living, but you will live differently, and you will see things differently. And so for us, we were surprised by the ongoing nature of it. We were also surprised by the lack of understanding of the ongoing nature of it. And a part of writing Finding Hope in Times of Grief, which has been published by Harvest House, uh, has been to help people walking through grief understand they're not alone, understand something of the nature of the challenge, but also to help people who are relating to people in grief, who are trying to support people in grief, to understand at least a little bit more about what's going on. Um, People looking on from the outside at those who are grieving. Lots of times they don't see a very pretty picture. That was certainly the case in our lives. And Glenda and I looked at each other many times along the way following the deaths of my father and our son and said, you know, why would anybody even want to be with us? We're sure not much fun at this time in life. And so it really is quite an ongoing process that there's not a lot of understanding about in some cases. And hopefully through the book Finding Hope in Times of Grief, uh, we're helping to some insight to those going through it as well as those living with those going through it.
3: Did you find also perhaps a lot of just Plain old-fashioned misconceptions out there about the grieving process. I mean, oftentimes there's that sense of well, don't worry about it; you'll get over it. I think of of people that uh, will attend a funeral service and will come, and and of course they mean well; they want to share words of comfort, but instead end up saying something that seems to be, for the moment, to the grieving person, so incredibly stupid. And then we ourselves add I guess, the the sense of pressure that we're we're trying to kind of show that stiff upper lip. We want to get back to work, get back to life, get back to the old. Old normal sometimes.
4: Certainly that is true. I remember very clearly about two weeks after uh, Nathan's funeral that um, I said to a friend on a Friday, I think by Monday we'll be back to our normal schedule. And I was so wrong because the grief was just paralyzing and it took Um, really for me a good three years before I really got back to much of anything normal and back to another point that you had asked before I think that's just part of everybody does it differently and a a friend um, some people said some very freeing things one friend said at one point I just said I just cannot stop crying and she said cry as much as you need to so there were friends that um, had great compassion But there was a misconception and misunderstanding on our part about what grief was. But also, we were surprised, especially with the Christian community, about a misunderstanding about grief and some of the things that people would say to us.
3: Help me understand more about that, because, you know, we sometimes as Christians can can say some cruel things, again, I think largely out of a sense of of ignorance or, um, you know, we're we're wanting to help and just don't realize we're actually doing more harm than good. Well,
4: sometimes it would almost just be boring, because... I guess one of the most insulting things anybody ever said was said to Preston by someone that had been in ministry as long as we had, uh, and he said to Preston, as soon as I found out that your son had gone to heaven, I began to pray that God would not judge me and take my own son. And um, the, the theology that you bring to a situation is very important, but the person grieving already has a tremendous explosion that has occurred in their life. And they're just trying to pick up the pieces and cling to God the best they can. And then when somebody comes and says something like that, it just adds another big explosion. And people just have no idea how important it really is to just say nothing and be a presence and uh, pray.
3: Does it also run the gambit, too, in the opposite extreme, Uh, Preston? I'm thinking of those that, especially later on in the grieving process, we might be a year later, and and, and maybe you can speak to that, too, in a moment, but this idea that, well, I I don't want to bring back painful memories. I don't bring something up. So, for example, um, the loss of your son, a neighbor who says, well, I know that tomorrow's your son's birthday. They're thinking to themselves, but they don't dare mention it because the impression is that by mentioning something about your son, that's going to bring back some painful thoughts.
2: Well, that's a good point, Craig. People, it's important for people to understand that on the one hand, it's, they shouldn't say cliches and trite phrases without really understanding what they're talking about. But at the same time, it's a tremendous blessing to a person to know that a year or two or three down the road, others are remembering your lost, your absent loved one. And, They let you know that they're still thinking of you, that they're still praying for your family, that the individual was important and special to them because of a particular reason. That's a tremendous blessing and encouragement. Part of the challenge of going through grief is you come to think you're alone, you're isolated, you're the only one walking around feeling like you have the perpetual chronic flu in your soul. And when somebody down the road does say to you, you know, I was thinking about your son, I was thinking about your father, I was thinking about your brother or sister just today, and I remembered this, I remembered that, weren't they a blessing? Uh, That's a great encouragement. It lets people, it lets you know that people have not forgotten and that you are not alone, humanly speaking, and of course we are not alone from the standpoint that God is with us, He sent His Son into the world as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and and that is the key to coming out the other side, as you raised. It is having that intimate, vital, personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and ideally before the storm hits your life. When a storm hits your life, it's a little late sometimes to get the foundation in place, but our Lord said, if you hear the Word of God and do it, you are like the person who has built his house on a rock, and when the storms do come, not if they come, but when they come, your house will stand. And so the key to getting through it and coming out the other side strong and healthy uh, is indeed having that relationship with Christ, that experience in God's Word, that daily moment-by-moment practice of prayer. Those things really do make a difference in addition to having the caring interaction with people who, who, who are praying for you, and who want to help in any way they can and have some measure of sensitivity.
3: When we come back, a look at taking care of yourself and learning what the process is for you. Finding hope in times of grief. Our conversation with Preston and Glenda Parrish continues on this edition of Lifeline.